0: I don't know if you spent any time yesterday, uh, as Troy mentioned, making resolutions. Uh, June and I always begin the year by going out and eating breakfast and sitting down and doing a review of the past year and then doing a, you know, here's what we would like to accomplish this year. Uh, we cover all kinds of things. We cover everything from vacation to our finances to our church work, our own individual spiritual plus personal goals. Troy you know, said, you know, perhaps you put on your list to lose weight. I simply transfer that from year to year to my list. You know, Lose weight, lose weight, lose weight. You know? And so that's just, just part of the process. But it's always helpful to ask, what are we going to do for God this year? And the older I get, the more important that question becomes. And and this year's theme for our sermons on Sunday morning is discovering the mission of God. And, And what I hope to accomplish, along with the rest of our preaching team, is to look at what God was trying to do through Israel, as far as his mission was concerned, through Jesus, through the gospel itself, and then to spend probably the majority of our time, near the end of the year, looking at how God works in my life, your life, in order to shape us to fulfill His mission in the world. Pew Research came out with a survey about two or three weeks ago. Pew Research Center is an organization that looks at religion in America. And here's what they said. The secularizing shifts evident in American society so far in the 21st century show no signs of slowing. Now secularization simply means the process where people say, I don't believe in anything. Or I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. And then notice, the latest Pew Research Center survey of the religious composition of the United States finds the religiously unaffiliated. In other words, people who say, I don't take part in any kind of religion at all. That share of the public is six percentage points higher than it was five years ago and ten points higher than a decade ago. Now, I want you all to think about that for a moment. Every decade, or, excuse me, every year of the last decade, 1% of the American adult population has moved into saying, I don't, I really don't have any kind of religious affiliation at all. And so, right now, currently, about 3 in 10, 29% of United States citizens say that they are nuns. And I don't mean N-U-N-S, I mean N-O-N-E-S, okay? They're nuns. In other words, they're either atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular when asked about their religious identity. Now, here's the problem with that. Secularization has to do with your worldview. It has to do with how you look at life. What is the foundation that you live your life on? And when you move from a worldview that says you believe in God... And therefore, you live your life out of that belief to saying that you don't believe in anything, that basically life is life and there's no purpose or meaning to it, then that shows up or manifests itself in how you relate to yourself, how you relate to other people. And if you've been wondering, why has our country been moving the direction it's moving, a lot of it has to do with this reality. I want to introduce you to a uh, fascinating individual. His name is Ard Louis. Ard Louis was born in Central Africa to parents who, uh, first of all, both were scientists. They were biologists who were working there in the rainforest of Central Africa. But they were also believers. They had come to faith in Jesus Christ, and so he was raised there, and and then went and got his PhD in Holland. He is now currently the professor of theoretical physics at the University of Oxford. Now, I don't know anything about physics, and I don't know anything about theoretical physics. Okay, I have watched the Big Bang Theory now for several years, still don't know what it means. Okay, But what's fascinating about Ard is that Ard is also a believer in Jesus Christ. And being a believer in Jesus Christ, he deals with everything from the makeup of the universe, of course, his parents being biologists, he's constantly fascinating about how that relates to the biological world and also to the ethical world. And he's constantly engaging people who are secularists. Of course, he's over in England right now, and England as well as Europe is, is mostly secular now. Even though Christianity is, quote, unquote, the state religions of most of of Europe, most of Europe don't believe in God. They don't go to church. They they don't participate in any type of religion at all. About three or four years ago, Dr. Louie sat down with another gentleman by the name of Alex Rosenberg. Alex Rosenberg is in his mid-70s now. He is professor of philosophy at Duke University. All right, so imagine that. Now, philosophy is simply the area of study of where you're asking about the basic questions of life. That's what philosophy does. Is there a God? Is there a purpose in life? Why are we here? What ethics do you follow? I mean, those are all philosophical questions. And so, someone who's teaching philosophy is exploring those issues. He wrote a book about nine years ago, it came out in December of of 2012, so it's about nine years old, called The Atheist Guide to Reality. And what was fascinating about Dr. Rosenberg is that he was as honest an atheist as I've ever read about. I mean, he sat down uh, with, with Dr. Louis, and in their conversation, Dr. Louis said, Now, I want you to explain to me the implications of being an atheist. I mean what does that do as far as the questions of philosophy are concerned? And so they did a series of, of interviews and questions entitled a, a summary of Rosenberg's view, that's what I called it. And, and Rosenberg basically argued, and I don't know why it's that large, I plugged it in there Blake and all at once it's super large. But, but he asked the question, or they asked him the question, how do you answer life's questions? And he says, Well, science does that. Science either has or eventually will answer all of life's questions. And so they started throwing questions at him. For instance, number one, and again, I apologize for the mistake there. Was it wasn't there when I looked at it earlier? Does God exist? Number one question to ask him. And the response of Dr. Rosenberg was obviously not. Now, it's fascinating to me because he's not a scientist, he's a philosopher. You know, here he is talking to a theoretical physicist, a scientist, who believes in God, and yet his response to does God exist, obviously not. Does the universe have meaning? And look at his response, it doesn't have any. Now, I don't know if you're aware of the fact that we just launched a brand new telescope. Christmas Day. And, and it's the Webb Telescope. It's supposed to be, you know, a uh, hundred times more powerful to, than the Hubble Space Telescope. And, and by summertime, we're supposed to be getting these spectacular pictures, you know, going way back into time as the universe came into existence. All right? And yet, here is Dr. Rosenberg saying there is no meaning to that universe we're exploring. What about the purpose of life? He says, Ditto doesn't have any purpose. Your life doesn't have any purpose. My life doesn't have any purpose. We are simply creatures that are the result of evolution. There's no meaning. There's no purpose to any of our lives. What's the nature of right and wrong? He says there's not a moral difference, which I thought was fascinating. You see, because one of the big questions in universities right now is on what basis do you establish a, a uh, standard of right and wrong and as far as Dr. Rosenberg is concerned you can't do it. Now what makes this so odd to me is that Dr. Rosenberg's parents, his mother was a survivor of the Holocaust. He was born in 1946 in Eastern Europe as communism was taking effect. His father during World War II worked as a medic for the Russian army. And they escaped Eastern Europe, came to the United States, and both of his parents became professors themselves. And yet here he is, having written even a book about his mother's life, and yet looking at World War II and what happened under Nazi Germany, he would say there's really not an issue of morality there. It is simply what happens as a result of the evolutionary process. And then number five, do we have free will, not a chance. He says, now we all live under the illusion of free will, but we really don't have free will. This morning I was coming to the building and the big question this morning as I was coming to the building is, would it be an egg McMuffin or a sausage McMuffin with egg? All right, That was my big teleological question as I was driving to the church building this morning a little bit before 7 o'clock. And as I was going by the building, I saw John Micah's Jeep already at the building. And I thought, now I've got a second problem. And that is, do I buy John Micah one or do I not? That's a tough one. Now, according to Rosenberg, I didn't make that decision. Nature made that decision. All of those little electrons up in my brain, all the firings of that electricity, what finally made me to decide as I pull up to McDonald's, I'd as well as go ahead and get John Micah one as well. You know. And, and so, I didn't have a free choice into what I was going to make. My brain made it because that's the way evolution has designed me to react. Now, people who grow up in religious environments look at the world very differently. You know, whether you grow up as Christian, Jewish, whether you grow up as a Hindu uh, or a Muslim all of us look at the world very differently it's not science that answers life's questions but it's the gods of the faith that we have that we grow up in and what's unique about that for those of us who are christians is that many of these religions especially christianity judaism and islam believe that god has actually revealed himself through inspired words in other words the jews would say that they have the scriptures given to them by God, starting in the book of Genesis, going through the book of Malachi. Islam has the Quran. in many ways, kind of a reflection of the Old Testament books that the Jews believe in. And then, of course, we as Christians come along and say, yes, we believe that God revealed himself to Jews, but he also revealed himself to we who are Christians through what we call the New Testament. And so, most of the time, religions will say, God... if." if we believe in God, has revealed himself to us in some form. But what separates us as Christians, as believers in Jesus, is that we don't just believe in a written revelation from God. We, in the last month, have been celebrating the fact that that God came in human flesh. He revealed himself personally by becoming a human being. And that incarnation is one of those amazing things that we have celebrated for now the four past four weeks and it's that incarnation that separates Christianity from Judaism Christianity from Islam and the rest of the world's religions now do we believe in the Bible of course we believe in the Bible we believe that not only has God revealed himself In the person of Jesus, but God has revealed himself through the inspired words of Scripture itself. Both telling that story and, of course, telling everything that led up to that story. Now, here's why that's important. I don't know how many of you know Ming Wang. Uh, How many of y'all have heard his testimony before? Would you raise your hand? We've got just a handful of people here who've heard his testimony. Ming Wang is a very famous eye doctor here in Nashville. Uh, Ming Wang grew up in China as a child. Grew up during what was called that, that revolutionary time under Mayo. Uh, uh, my, Mayo, I hope I say that right. Mayo tongue, in which you had this you know, uh, advancement supposedly in the Chinese culture that killed literally thousands and thousands if not millions of people. And, and as a child, it was iffy as to whether or not he'd be sent to the work camps or if he somehow would be spared the work camps. And in his own testimonial, he says, because I could play an instrument beautifully, I was spared the work camps. His parents then gave him enough money to get him to the United States. He went to Harvard, got his doctors there at Harvard, went to MIT, got a Ph.D. In, uh, uh, there at MIT in lasers, And then, of course, became one of the world's most renowned eye doctors as far as, you know, fixing very difficult problems. Ming Wang tells that when he was at Harvard studying the eye, that having been raised an atheist in communist China, he began to question if that was possible. I mean, could everything be the result of evolution with the eye being as complicated as the eye was? And in the end, he ends up converting not only to theism, but to the theism as represented by Christianity. He became a believer in God and accepted the fact that Jesus Christ was his son. And and so he goes around and he gives his testimony of going from being an atheist in China to being a believer in the United States of America. But it was the complexity of the eye that convinced him. You know, if people were to ask me, Les, why do you believe in God? Why do you believe in Christianity? You know, what is it about your experiences that that make you believe that it it couldn't be any other way? And my answer is not because of the complexity of the I, but because of the complexity of the Bible itself. One of the great joys I've had in my life is being able to study the Bible. Rodney's enjoyed the same thing, just spending a lifetime of investigating Scripture. And one of the things as I've studied Scripture since I was just a kid going to church is how the more I study the Scripture, the more complex I find it. And of course, books like Revelation that uh, we're teaching right now on Wednesday nights here in the auditorium class, the more I study just the book of Revelation, the more I think there is no way in the world That this could have been written without God being behind it is simply too complex. And one of the things I love about scriptures is something that a long time ago, uh, Augustine said something to this effect, the holy scriptures are shallow enough for a child to wade in and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And I find that to be so true. I mean, our children right now are back in kids' church. What are they learning? They're learning those basic, simple stories that help shape who they are. And at the same time, you can go to classes here. We've got adult classes scattered all over the building. There's a brochure out at the Welcome Center. You can go and pick up and tell you where the classes are. But these classes take us deeper into the text. And what I've discovered over a lifetime of Bible study is no matter how deep you go, you can go deeper. It is just that simple and what scripture does is scripture answers those basic questions of life and so if you were to pause and instead of looking at dr. Rosenberg's summary of what is life all about and look at what scripture says the answers to life questions are you find a very different set of answers for instance, the very first one, does God exist? Genesis 1.1 begins with a simple phrase. In the beginning, God. I mean, the ancient world said, really? You look at this world that we live in and you somehow imagine its existence without some power outside of it? That's one of the things I enjoyed about the interview with uh, Dr. Louie. As Dr. Lewis basically said, from an early age, he struggled with the same issues I struggled with, and that is you're left with only one of two possibilities: either the world we live in, matter as we experience it now, is eternal; either it's always been here. And of course, scientists will tell us, well, no, there was a beginning because the world is expanding or the universe is expanding, and so there was a beginning point at sometimes in the past. And of course, the big question is, what's before? that big bang as oftentimes it's described. And so your, your response to that is either creation as we see it is eternal or there is something behind creation that brought it into existence that is eternal. And as a, as a teenager I remember struggling with one of those two possibilities. Which is it? And, and of course what, what the Bible teaches us it is the fact that God existed before the world came into existence. Psalm 14, 1, and I love the voice here. It says, listen, a wicked and foolish man truly believes that there could not be a God. By just looking at the world that we live in. I love Psalm 19, one of these beautiful revelatory Psalms that says, listen, God has revealed himself through, in this particular case, both nature and revelation. I mean, that's what this whole Psalm that David writes is all about. But let's all face it. We go outside and we look up in the sky on a starry night and the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I mean, all you have to do is is go to the Smoky Mountains, go to the Grand Canyon, go to Yellowstone and you just stand there in amazement and go, this is not possible without there being a God behind it. And so you get this natural revelation that God says proves the existence of him. And, of course, you could go to other texts in the Bible. People say, well, apologetics demand more than just nature, and there's more than just nature there. The Scripture at least says that that's a good place to begin. Number two, does the universe have meaning? And again, going back to Genesis, right off the bat, God creates the heavens and the earth. The universe comes into existence And notice, now the earth was formless, empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God pronounces, let there be light. And there is light. And God saw that the light was good. You look at at a text like this. And and if you're not careful, and, and, and it may be, as Troy said, you started your, you know, trying to read through the Bible this year. Be careful in not reading too fast. You know, one of the things about Genesis 1 is its simplicity. And I love that. You know, if I were to say to you right now, tell me what was created on each of the six days of creation. Could you do it? Could you write them down? Could you say day one, day two, day three, day four? You know, it's kind of like being asked to tell someone the Ten Commandments. I remember several years ago, someone, a representative down in Georgia was bemoaning the fact that they were taking the Ten Commandments down from courthouses and things like that. And one of the reporters asked him one day, he said, okay, so you're for the Ten Commandments. He said, absolutely, we need the Ten Commandments up. And then he made a mistake when the reporter says, can you name me the Ten Commandments? And of course, the representative was lost, didn't have a clue. Could get a few of them. But here, something is so important that we need to make sure it's in our courthouses, but it's not so important that it's in our hearts and minds. You see where the problem comes in. Well, the six days of creation is incredibly simple. If you just look at the the way in which the inspired writer, way back then, put it together, there's six days divided up into two sets of three. Easiest way to remember it in the world. The first set of three, God creates space. That's what God creates, space. Then in the second three, he creates the things that go in that space. And if you'll remember that, you can always answer, what did God create on each day? For instance, on the first day, God creates light, separates the light from the darkness. It's day one. Day one corresponds to day four, when God created that which goes over here in the light and darkness. What is it that governs the light and darkness? He created the sun, stars, and moon. Easy. Easy. Light, dark, sun, moon, and stars to govern it. Second day over here, he creates the separation of the waters. And so you have water above, water below, and sky in between. That's day two. Day five over here corresponds. What, what lives in water in the air? Fish and birds. And so you have the filling over here, the space, and over here he fills it up. Day three, he creates the dry land. The vegetation, everything needed for life. Day six, what does he put on the dry land? He puts the animals. And then, of course, at the end, creates us. Just a very simple way of remembering what was created the six days of creation. Something that we can teach our first graders, our kindergarten kids, and, of course, some of us who are adults. And yet, far more profound than that. What's interesting is those opening verses tell us so much about the God that we serve. Paul would say it this way, for in Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities. And I love this last line, all things have been created through him or by him and for him. You know, one of the things you see in those verses back in Genesis is you see the Godhead manifested for the first time. You see God, the Ancient of Days, as He, you know, plans and creates all of this that we see. And then you see the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, as He's hovering over what God had created, bringing order out of it. And then God speaks. And of course you turn to the New Testament and you find in the speaking of this is Jesus, the Word, who utters the words that brings everything into existence. It's created by Him. And as John said, through Him all things were made and without Him nothing's been made that has been made. You get this introduction to the Godhead. But not just the introduction to the Godhead, but you begin as you work through Scripture, as I said, the complexity of it. Because in this Godhead is this remarkable unity. We call it Trinity, three in one. One of the most difficult concepts I struggled with as a teenager. How in the world can there be one God and yet somehow have these three manifestations or personalities in the Godhead? How is that possible? Until I had a beloved teacher who said to me, Don't try to figure out the mystery of God. You can't do it. Just accept it. And then in this unity is this remarkable thing, this trinity, this three-in-one, is this remarkable thing called love. You know, if you ask Dr. Rosenberg, what do you believe love is? He would say love is simply chemical reactions taking place in the brain. That's all there is. And when I hold June's hand, something tells me there's a lot more than that. It's that simple. You know, and, and God, through Scripture, says, listen, I'm love. And that's the most important thing that, that I am and that you need to understand about me. God is love. Most simplest of three words and yet the most profound of all the Scriptures found in the Bible. Number three, what's the purpose of life? And again, you go back to Genesis. Then God said, let us make mankind so that they may rule. I think if there was anything I was not taught when I was growing up, is why God created us. And God created us with a purpose, and that purpose was to rule over his creation. Psalm 8, that beautiful psalm about the creation of man. You made them, human beings, rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. And God just didn't make us to rule over creation. But when he put Adam in the garden, notice the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. One of the things you'll find from me is I'm a strong believer in ecology. I'm a strong believer in taking care of the world that we live in. And it grieves me what we're doing to the world. I mean, the way that we're polluting our waters, the way we're polluting our air, the way that we're destroying all the animals that God put here for us to take care of. And, and I had a brother one time when I preached on ecology and the Christian's responsibility to creation, and he caught me at the back doors, not at this church, at a different church, and he says, I hope you don't preach any more of that ecology garbage. And his response was, God's going to burn this place up, and so whether we take care of it or not doesn't matter. Let me just tell you that in God's eyes, my friends, those words were blasphemy. God created us to care for this world. And you go, why care for this world? Because one day in the future, we will care for a new one God creates, and this is where we prepare for it. Again, we look at Revelation 5, 10 where he says you have made them. Who's the them? That's us. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve God and they will reign one day over your creation. They'll do it. Future tense, not past tense, future tense. And I tell everybody, what is God doing now? He's preparing us for the role we will serve in and through eternity. And put very simple, Jesus said to those who have been faithful over little, God will make them rulers over much. You need to think about that. And then what's the nature of right and wrong? Again, Dr. Rosenberg says there is no right or wrong, morally speaking. And yet when you turn to the scripture, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. There is something unique about human beings. When they asked Rosenberg if there was a soul, if there was a spirit in human beings, were there any difference between humanity and the rest of the animal kingdom? And Dr. Rosenberg said, absolutely not. No difference between us and a worm that crawls along the ground. You know, we're just simply a process of the evolutionary chain. And yet, in Scripture, God says, no, 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 no. You're different. You're different because you're created in my image. You're created in my likeness, which, by the way, gives you identity. Identity, I think, is one of the most important things any of us can can get our minds around because identity has to do with how we look at ourselves. You know, someone will say to you, tell me a little bit about you. What do you tell them? And everybody out in the world is struggling to figure out where do they fit in to this world and can I tell you that the answer to that question should be, Who am I? Who are you? We are people created in the image of our God. That's the most important identity any and all of us have. And what makes that identity is so important is you turn to 1 John 1, 1.5. This is the message we've heard uh, from Him and declare to you. God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Now, is there darkness in us? Of course there is. Because of the fall. We'll talk about this next week. But God created us with no darkness in us. We were created as these beautiful images of himself. Is there a morality? Of course there's a morality. Reflected in the very nature of God himself that's been implanted in us. Doesn't take a genius. I don't know if you've seen the commercial on uh, television for AT&T. Of where the lady's talking about, you know, do we treat everybody the same? And gives the little boy a sucker. uh, Or gives the little girl a sucker. And then gives the brother of the, of the little girl, a really nice sucker. And what does the little girl say? That's not fair. Isn't it amazing that a little child knows what's right and what's wrong, what's fair and what's unfair, all because of the nature God created us with. And then finally, the last one. Do we have free will? And Rosenberg said, absolutely not. But what does Scripture say? And scripture says, listen, God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. There he put the man he had formed. And God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. And then God does something else. In the middle of the garden where the tree was the tree of life, or were the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God wanted us to be like him in another way. Not just good, but individuals who could choose whether we wanted to remain good. And so God simply says to Adam and Eve and the Lord commanded the man, you are free. You are free. You, you, you can eat from any of the trees. Your choice. But if you eat from the tree that's in the middle, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. And that's destiny we all have. Because we as mankind chose poorly. We chose to exercise our free will over God's will for our lives. And that's why when you get to the New Testament, God comes back and he gives us a choice again. And that's, that's what I love, uh, again, about the incredible complexity of Scripture. You turn to John, and John begins his gospel with these words, Yet to as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, he gave the authority, he gave the option to become children of God. To be restored back to what God created us to be. And by the way, that choice is still here today. It's still a choice that you have. It's a choice that I have. And if I were to say to anyone about the importance of free will and choice, it is, make the right choice. God gives us an opportunity. An opportunity to be back in fellowship with Him. If you have not exercised that right, That choice, exercise it today. It begins with a simple decision to put your faith in his son, as his son, as one who died for you, and then to be buried with him in an act called baptism. We would be honored to assist you in that. What a wonderful way to start a new year as a child of God. And if you need to do that, let's do it right now. Let's gather.